My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Julie Novakova. Julie is an award-winning Czech author of science fiction and detective stories. She's published seven novels, an anthology, a story collection, and over 30, 30 short pieces in Czech. And her work in English has appeared in some of the premier magazines um, in the world of speculative fiction and imaginative li- literature. She's also a PhD candidate in evolutionary biology at Charles University and writes wonderful popular science articles about fields ranging from behavioral science to planetary dynamics for Clark's World Magazine and others. She's also a member of the XPRIZE Science Fiction Advisory Council, and uh, she weaves together beautifully her capacity to tell inspiring stories of possible futures rooted in a really solid understanding of, of practical science without, in my opinion, sacrificing the heart and humanity of her characters. So she does, does what is not easy to do, threads together big ideas and high-quality research with, with strong character-driven storytelling. It's really fun stuff to read and inspiring stuff to read. She's got a huge body of work, and I hope that at the end of this conversation, you feel inspired to dig deeper into it. Uh, there's so much to learn from Julie and how she shows up in the world. So let's get settled in <sighs> and hear what Julie has for us. Julie, hello. Welcome to the world. Hello, Emily. Thank you. Hmm. It's so nice to meet you. You too. I'm really grateful for our mutual friend, Ray. You know, there, Ray Naylor, who introduced us, I, I found that there are certain people, I've talked to so many people now doing this, this journey of the podcast, which has been so important to me over the past two years, when for a whole variety of reasons, uh, I haven't had a chance to be face-to-face with a, a lot of people. And uh, And every so often I meet someone who sort of just seems to be, has some sort of gift for connection. And Ray absolutely is one of those people. And so I'm grateful for him. And particularly because I like, love your stories. They're so good. I wish I had had time to read more. I was literally reading one and I'm like, all right, I have to go talk to the person who wrote this, but I really want to keep reading. So just such a, it's been such a treat to spend some time with your characters and your worlds uh, before we get to, to come together today. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned characters because uh, some readers said that my plot uh, is usually strong, that the ideas are great, 
but what could be better are the characters. What do you think? Well, who says that? I want to talk. I want to have a stern talking to them about. Now, I mean, like, I, from the data I had, I've got to read three of your stories: the Ship Whisper, Becoming, and Reset and Peace. And uh, I, I've, I really appreciated the way. I appreciate the way that you, to my reading, artfully blend really big ideas. Right, like for instance, take the Great Reset, which sort of exists in a near future of what feels like our Earth. Or something close to it, where consciousness can be reconstructed, sort of by pulling together all these different sources—video and audio and notes and articles—which, like, there are people right now who are working on those kinds of projects. So you're like extrapolating out not very far, and you have this like wonderful set piece that then that this like sweet computer programmer who's trying to navigate his relationship with his husband. Meets this seemingly like mysterious, nefarious corporate titan, and then it like you know I don't want to give too much away, but it turns into this sort of bittersweet love story. So from where I I sit, like yeah, I love the characterization. I think there's a real strength there alongside the ideas. Yeah, well, here uh, after I got the main idea, I wanted to subvert the trope of some shadowy figure trying to extract some really important research or corporate information out of someone who's already dead. So uh, I thought, what if they instead wanted just to connect with the dead person, which after all is the reason why such simulations are being built today, you know, to connect, to try to say things that one didn't during life. And uh, What if this shadowy figure had no access to the program of the person he loved? What would he do? I mean, mm-hmm. would he be able to uh, try to bribe people, hack into the systems, and so on, just to uh, say something that he couldn't bring himself to say when she was alive? Mm-hmm. That I felt that um, that insight, which which maybe it's maybe it's the main character. Can you remind me of the main character's name? I'm blank, blanking on his name. Is it Krauss? Is that right? Yes, it's Krausborg. Yeah, yeah, Krausborg. So so I think he's the one who says or maybe it's actually maybe it's actually the construct, but someone at near the end says, yeah, for some reason people really need these constructs so that they can say the thing that they weren't able to say when they were when when we were when I was alive, when we were alive. And I thought, like, there's a way in which that might just be like a missed opportunity. There, I can imagine a situation where uh, someone thinks that they have more time than they do, and suddenly the person's gone, and they wish they had said something. But there's also something about like sometimes we're scared to say the thing that we really want to say. And I sense that that was part of that insight about this story. And I wonder, I wonder how how you relate to that insight in your life, or what what was important to you about about mining that territory of of Love lost and regret, and the desire to try and repair something that seems irreparable. Well, I guess that uh, for this type of thing, my insight comes from being a more reserved person, someone who uh, usually ponders what she says, and who uh, perhaps doesn't make friends so easily. Mm. But. Uh, 
I've been really lucky in my life. So oh, actually, oh, I have to imagine things like oh, regret of some love lost or, oh, you know, someone really oh, close to myself dying. I mean, fortunately, oh, I've been shielded from such tragedies so far. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I, I thought the story was just um, a, beautiful, a beautiful examination of these questions of mortality and fragility and love. So uh, whoever, whoever's given you feedback that your characterizations need more attention, I don't know, take it with a grain of salt. Everyone has an opinion. <laughs> Um, actually, when you mentioned pondering mortality, uh, for me, uh, there's also the angle of what it means to be a human, what it mm. means to be a sapient, sentient being. Uh, mm. How will we change in the future? Are we going to remain virtually the same uh, that we are today? I mean, uh, we can't say with certainty uh what the mentality, what the psyche of people, let's say uh, 500,000 years ago was, I mean, before uh, modern humans, uh, we don't even know uh, what early modern humans were like. We can only imagine. But uh, after the beginning of written history, uh, even though our technology changes, our society changes, and we change our environment, uh, we remain virtually the same in uh, that we seek companionship, love, power, uh, and other things that uh, we can find in the oldest myths, in the oldest texts. Mm. And uh, I mean, a thousand years from now, is there going to be anyone chasing the same things or uh, is the majority of humanity going to rewire themselves into someone uh, thinking on completely different terms or uh, are we going to uh, use uh, genetic engineering to change uh, the core of humanity and uh, the question also is, why would we do that? What are we trying to achieve? I mean, some people today are after immortality, after uh, heightened intelligence, uh, increased uh, sensory perception, you know, just trying to make the most of who they themselves are and their virtually uh, selfish reasons. But for others, it might be trying to uh, increase empathy, trying to uh, be uh, less selfish, uh, to uh, rely less on uh, the uh, innate tendency, for instance, to regard one's family as the most important beings in the universe. Mm. And when faced with a choice whether to save the family or save uh, 10 more people, most people uh, would go save their family, even though the numbers don't exactly fit. So, uh, you know, 
what if there were many people thinking that we need to change this tendency and we need to regard all life uh, with the same value and uh, we don't need to stop with human life. I mean, uh, what if uh, we were rewired to uh, hold, uh, let's say, a cat life uh, to the same value as a human life and so on? Uh, and would such a change, uh, what impact would such a change have on the society and on our interaction with the planet, with the biosphere? So these are the kind of questions I often ponder. And so, yeah, I mean, they're close to thinking uh, about mortality and about artificial intelligence because it's all interconnected. And they're basically the core of not just some science fiction stories, but I would say most science fiction stories because ultimately all science fiction asks the question, what if, I mean, something's different there. What if we could be nearly immortal? What if we could communicate with animals more easily? What if we could travel to other star systems and so on? And it always changes not just the technology and the science, but also who we are and our society. Mm. So, uh, oh, Julia, yeah, there's, there's so much in there I want to talk about now, but let me just see. I feel I, I have like four questions I want to ask you at once. So let me see which one comes out. I mean, in a way you're demonstrating what I sense is one of your superpowers, which is the capacity to ask what if questions. <laughs> is that, does that resonate with you? I guess so. I mean, from- I mean, you, just, you just gave us like 20 beautiful provocative what ifs that, that if I sat with each one, I could, you know, we could, anyone listening or any of us could spend hours kind of like, yeah, yeah. how <laughs> would it change our relationship to each other in the biosphere if we, if we were able to relate empathically with, with animals or for frankly, other people more than we're able to relate to other people than we are now. Well, I guess that asking these questions is both my blessing and a curse because <laughs> I've always been curious, always been asking questions, you know, in the classroom ever since I was a small child, I was the one holding my hand up and not just with an answer to the question that the teacher asked, but also with my own questions mm, mm, and that sort mm. of all uh, uh, I preserved this trait until adulthood. Thank and, goodness. Uh, Thank goodness you did. It can be sometimes a curse, not just a blessing because I'm so curious about so many things that I have trouble uh, focusing on just one narrow question, even though that's sometimes beneficial when one's doing research or, mm. or mm. at least trying to achieve a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and I get distracted by so many other interesting questions and so many other uh, career avenues yeah. that uh, I keep blending science and education and science fiction writing and translation and editing and I really don't want to specialize in just one narrow direction. Mm, mm. 
you know, there's there's some there's a case to be made for the 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 many gifts that specialization has given us, and there's also a case to be made for all the ways that it cuts us off from new ways yeah. of thinking and being. So we, so I appreciate you sort of straddling that line. I I sense you're both trying to go deep, and also look wide. And you know your story. I mean, the story, um, the Ship Whisperer, which is the sort of title story of your wonderful collection of stories. It touches into at least three of the, three or four of the what if questions you asked. I mean, it alludes to a an offshoot of humanity. I think they're called like the Chara colony, yeah. who have sort of done all of those things, like kind of genetically and cybernetically experimented with all sorts of ways of being that that for a more conservative society would be quite terrifying. And it is. There's a there's sort of a representative in your story, a, a colonel or or a general or sort of a ship's yeah, captain who's like, yeah, that's right, yeah, who's just sees them as an abomination. Yeah. But 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 what's implicit in your story is that 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 everyone that is in the story comes from the same same. They came from Earth. They all came from the same place, mm-hmm. and yet have diverged in all of these really pretty intense ways. And uh, and then, and then you're like, oh, also, I'm going to throw in this uh, technology that might make uh, uh, time dilation on scales of billions of years possible. And what if that were possible? So, like, just I'm like, oh, it's so good. And you're ending like the, the uh, again, I don't want to give it away, but I was like, the ending is sort of, uh, again, this, there's this moment of like, wow, that's not what I expected. The characters didn't expect it. The reader doesn't expect it. And it and ends with like, what what now? What could we do now that this happened? And it's just so, I really, really enjoyed that one. Thank you. I was actually toying with an idea to write a follow-up story and I might Ooh, one day. I hope you do. I hope you do. Maybe without saying, giving too much away that the thing I loved is that you, the story ends in a setting which we know is going to come sometime in the far future where our galaxy, the Milky Way, has collided with the Andromeda galaxy. And that's a new galaxy, sort of sort of mega galaxy is formed in this collision. And the characters sort of wake up in that context and go like, what's here now? You know, and that like, yeah, I'd love to see you imagine that. I bet you could come up with some great stuff. Yeah, well, I love to combine ideas coming from different fields. Uh, basically, the Ship Whisperer started with this really narrow idea of what if there was a black dwarf existing in our galaxy right now, because that's an object that shouldn't exist in the universe for trillions of years. Uh, because our, our universe just isn't old enough yet for something. Yeah, like exactly. Reason. It's a cool white dwarf, a remnant of a sun-like star after it went through the red giant phase and shed its envelope. And, in our galaxy, there are lots of white dwarfs, but they cool really, really slowly. So, I mean, uh, we shouldn't really expect anything close to a black dwarf for, well, trillions of years, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, if we discovered one now, what would we think about it? I mean, how would we explain it? So, that's the idea I started with. Mm-hmm. But, of course, it's just a physics idea. It's not a story idea. So therein came the conflict of two vastly different societies and, you know, fear from change, fear from, uh, well, basically, xenophobia is at the core 
of uh, the conflict in the story and mm. at the core of uh, the character of Colonel Torres. And uh, it's this kind of thinking is something alien to the main character, Icarus, who is more open to change and who himself has been changed and now finds more solace in the company of ship AIs than fellow humans. Mm. So... Mm. There came the story. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. So good. It was so fun. Uh, I, I wanted to share, by the way, just in a nice bit of synergy, that, that Giordano Bruno is a bit of a patron saint of the Wonder Dome. Uh, there's, I, I actually don't, I haven't done enough research to know if this, this image is actually connected to him, but at least in what I've read and seen it is, there's this great image of a sort of, uh, of a you know, Franciscan monk or some kind of monk kind of peering through the starry sky. So there's this kind of dome and then the monk is kind of peering through the dome and seeing further than anyone has ever seen before. And it's just this great, like kind of ancient archaic image. And, and of course, Bruno, who was not officially a scientist, but was, was rather a monk, pushed so many frontiers of thinking and possibility. So I was really excited to see that the, the ship who Icarus whispered to, the ship whisperer, was named after Giordano Bruno. <laughs> so that was really fun. And I wonder like how, what was it, what was it like for you to kind of invoke those, uh, those characters? Like a Copernicus was another one, Galileo, right? Yeah. Well, I love to do this kind of thing uh, because uh, I mean, frequently I also wonder what it was like to uh, try to understand the world a few hundred years ago, a few thousand years ago, uh, what kind of wonder did one feel then when peering at the night sky or when trying to uh, imagine what's our place in the universe in the context of what has been known then? And uh, it's really uh, something awe-inspiring and we really are standing on the shoulders of giants mm who mm, came before mm, us and mm. who gave us these insights, this knowledge. And of course, uh, a lot of uh, proto-scientific insights uh, have been proved invalid uh, with time, but they still have pushed us forward. Yes. And uh, yeah. they made us ask new questions. They made us investigate whether these concepts hold or whether we, we need to devise new ones. Mm. So, mm. Uh, mm. I mean, yeah, even before the birth of modern science, uh, we have been coming to it from many different directions. And in the case of this story, uh, it was also this kind of joke that the main ship was uh, that Basically, the fleet was to be named after famous scientists, and the main ship wasn't actually named after a scientist, but rather after a monk who nevertheless uh, changed science with his mm. opinions mm. and mm. imagination. Mm. I mean, in a way, I think uh, I'll be sure to kind of link to some stuff in the show notes about Giordano Bruno, but in a way, he embodies what's possible if we live with the question, if we live into these what if questions, right? Yeah. Like what if Copernicus was right? 
Giordano asked, what would that mean for us? And, you know, he arrived at, at some pretty heretical conclusions. It would mean that there's no center of the universe. It would mean that other stars in the sky are suns that have their own planets. And, and that might mean that, there are other, that there's other life. And, uh, you know, just like, I mean, and, I'm, and, I, and the moment as I just play with that, I'm in touch with uh, parts of me that are really frustrated with there's something about our species, you know, we exist on this spectrum. And I guess maybe if all of us were all asking what if all of the time, like civilization as we know it wouldn't function, <laughs> which might be good in some ways. But, but like on the flip side, if no one was asking what if all the time, then civilization wouldn't be what we know it. It would be something else. It would be, it would have stagnated at some point. So yeah, that, I mean, it might so, never have existed because have existed, yeah. what if uh, is at the core of imagination, at the core of exploring and uh, coming up with new ideas, new technology. And yeah. Yeah. So it's like, there's something really, uh, I mean, I can, I can get in touch with a feeling of rage, like, the fact that, uh, if I remember correctly, Giordano Bruno was was killed for his heresies. Yes, yes he was. You know, so, and and we could just go through human history and find a very very long list of of people who paradoxically made our present moment possible, who were killed in the past for the ways they were pushing yeah. orthodoxy. How do you, I mean, like that's, that's, how do you, that's a pretty scary fact of our, of our species. And I wonder how you hold that in your writing and, and maybe, you know, you sort of touch on it and, and yeah. ship whisper, but maybe we could play with that a bit well, more. This is scary. Uh, and it all comes from the same place that we have already mentioned, you know, uh, fear from novelty, fear uh, from something different than one has known all his life. And uh, sometimes it could also have been pragmatic reasons like uh, power shifts uh, within the church and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and one can see such things uh, grinding people even today, not necessarily scientists, but often people trying to ask the what-if questions about our society, uh, how it could be conceived differently, uh, how it could work uh, without some kinds of economic or political division and power. And uh, in many countries uh, in the world, these questions are really dangerous. Yeah, yeah, uh, like... Like life and death dangerous. It really scares me. And uh, I kind of hope that this kind of danger doesn't spread uh, more widely than it already is. Uh, on the contrary. Mm -hmm. And uh, in some ways, I'm trying to push back against this by asking questions so uh, but it's easy for me because I live in a society where it's not penalized, where yeah. I can ask basically whatever I want. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 There's, there's, um, you know, there's something about what it, 
what does it mean? You know, like a, a what if we could ask about our reality right now is what if we could design a society or what if we could give rise, what if we could allow a society to emerge that was stable enough to um, make sure that people could be fed and could live yeah. safely, but was also flexible enough that that we could keep pushing it that we could keep yeah. asking them what well, if this is a huge question in all of science fiction and yeah. i mean we see so many examples and i guess that the most famous one uh is federation in star trek <laughs> yeah. where humankind uh has uh, evolved its society to keep everyone fed, to keep everyone as safe as possible and as free as possible while not stagnating, while keeping uh, up with exploration and, you know, actually focusing on uh, the new frontiers of science, mm. technology, mm. but also changing the society. Mm. So mm. this is kind of a utopian example of that. Mm. And so uh, I would really love to see something like that. And basically, uh, we should be able to achieve something like that even today with the science, technology and resources we have. But uh, it would mean overturning uh, the whole world, the whole society and politics mm. and economic mm. systems. Mm. And... Uh, it's just not feasible in the very near future. And mm. one keeps wondering what would make it feasible, whether such a society could stem from some large upheaval, for instance, after environmental disasters or uh, some more unexpected disaster like an asteroid strike and so on, or like in Star Trek, after the first contact. I mean, mm. who knows? Mm, mm. Yeah, if we come back to the idea of scientists being persecuted, uh, I actually recently wrote a story in Czech for an anthology commemorating the 200th anniversary uh, of the Gregorian monk and early scientist uh, Johann Gregor Mendel. Mm, uh, he was mm -hmm. an early geneticist and his experiments uh showed uh, how heredity works, at least for more simple traits. And I'm so sorry, that's my daughter. So I will okay, need to go away for 10 we'll, minutes. Yeah, take your time. So take your time. I'll be back as soon as I Okay. Okay, Julie, welcome back. I hope the little one is resting again. She is, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So. We were kind of mid mid inquiry in this this sort of line of inquiry around uh, pushing society and science and persecution and resistance and fear, and you were sharing that you had contributed to some kind of ethology related to to Gregor Mendel. So take us yeah. see if we can pick that back up. Because uh, it's the two hundredth anniversary this year, and uh, one Czech publishing house uh, had an idea uh, to release an anthology. Uh, with the theme of genetics, uh, not necessarily related to the character of Mendel, but to his ideas and uh, his impact on society and on science. 
So my story was set in an alternate world uh, in the uh, 1960s uh, in Soviet Russia. Uh, and the alternate world was very different because what in our world uh, was other pseudoscience that didn't work and plunged uh, Russia and other communist countries uh, into uh, basically agricultural disasters were uh, the ideas of Grofim uh, Denisovich Lysenko. Uh, and uh, he was basically a political figure uh, who was liked by Stalin and who shunned uh, the idea of genetics as bourgeois science and not fit for a communist country. And instead, uh, he propagated his own ideas that basically had no actual scientific foundation. So it was a disaster when they were applied mass scale. Wow. But in this alternate world, uh, he succeeded. And uh, the story is told from the perspective of uh, a daughter of uh, one of the dissidents uh, who didn't want to give up uh, his conviction uh, and uh, his reliance on actual signs. Mm. Uh, so mm. he was persecuted for that. And she now wants to avenge his death and to kill Lysenko. But in the end, she needs to decide what's more important for her, whether revenge or pursuing science and uh, trying to make the world a better place, even if she loses the chance uh, to kill the man who indirectly killed her father. And uh, if she aligns herself with such monsters. Wow. And Jeez, it sounds like an awesome story. Is it published yet as we're talking now or the to be published? Yeah, so it was published uh, about three months ago. And I'm planning to translate it into English later this year. Mm, lovely. What's the name of the story? Uh, actually, uh, I might change it uh, for the English title, but uh, literally it's wheat. Like wheat, so like uh, not weed like cannabis. Yeah, but we just just like, like weeds. Uh, yeah. And so this is interesting. What when you say that Lysenko was successful with his ideas, there's some there's some kind of um that produces some kind of dissonance, cognitive dissonance in me, because you're saying in reality his ideas were just completely scientifically ungrounded and has resulted in a failure. So in what way in this alternate universe was he successful? Was the the frame just different enough that, that his wacky ideas could work or were they, yeah, say more about that. I want to explore yeah, well, that. Basically what I needed for this story wasn't as much building an alternate history as building a world with alternate biology. Ah, okay. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. And, and um, you're pursuing a PhD in, is it evolutionary biology? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this is something that you've spent a fair bit of time thinking about uh, the sort of biological foundations for life and, and how we live. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And uh, 
So how did our biology need to be different or how did biology need to be different such that uh, Lysenko's politically driven ideas could actually work and still nevertheless create a context where science had something to push against? Well, I uh, first tried to uh, start from epigenetics, uh, you know, Mm. hereditary changes that uh, are not written in the genome itself, but rather in how the genome uh, is read by the molecular machinery, uh, which can happen several different ways so that some genes are silenced and some are uh, translated uh, more into proteins than others and so on. So uh, it was one approach that I ultimately decided uh, wouldn't suffice because uh, even if I changed how epigenetics worked in that alternate world, uh, it would... uh, still not really be enough for lysenkoism to work and uh, it would uh, rather push us more toward Lamarckian genetics Uh, Mm -hmm. you know Lamarck uh, slightly uh, earlier than Darwin and uh, thinking that uh, acquired changes uh, can be passed on to the next generation if I really really simplify it uh, and uh, yeah, so basically what I needed for this world uh, was that uh, one species uh, would be able to switch into another based on uh, the environmental conditions, Whoa. which of course is not possible in our <laughs> real world. Uh, Perhaps not so yet. Maybe the Chara, uh, Chara colony could pull that off. Uh, a few hundred thousand years in the future? (laughs) Maybe, yeah. So basically what I needed uh, was exactly like you're mentioning, some kind of conscious interference. So basically what they discover in this story is uh, that in very, very distant past, uh, someone, perhaps some alien civilization, messed with the genomes of Earth life and uh, created them so that under some conditions, one species could change into another. Uh, So basically the network uh, of genetic interactions was very delicately constructed uh, Mm. so that this Mm. would be possible. Mm. And, And given that there's dissidence and resistance and given that that the protagonist is sort of still standing for something, I I take it that that Lysenko's success was was like really problematic, that 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 somehow it was still very politically driven, even if even if it turned out that biology could support it. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, I mean. He was a figure who caused the deaths of, uh, I mean, even in this alternate uh, world where his ideas were successful, he still caused the deaths of people who disagreed with him because they were sent to gulags and Mm. killed. Mm. Mm. And uh, even uh, in the story at first, he had no idea that uh, this 
was the situation that uh, there was some kind of interference long, long ago. Uh, he basically stumbled onto it mm. by chance. Mm. Kind of by got lucky with then... uh, his political career rather than testing actual scientific hypotheses. So basically that's what the protagonist now has a chance to do. She can either pursue this really exciting scientific avenue and uh, you know start actual research on it uh, under the Senko, or she can try to kill him, but with it she's killing her chance of discovering what really happened and how it all works. Oh my gosh. Okay, so now, yeah, now I'm getting a felt sense for this, the the moral complexity of this story. And I could imagine that there are probably a number of scientists who are, or maybe technologists or some combination of, who are sitting with a similar version of that tension, right? Like we can see our society right now taking scientific understanding and, and applying it in ways that are pretty problematic. And I just, for some reason, the example I'm thinking of at the moment, which is a, is one amongst many is like the ways in which we're starting to merge, um, visual editing with artificial intelligence, sort of advanced, uh, kinds of AI to allow for what's called like a deep fake where, where it's like, Hey, I'm a, I'm, I'm a scientist or technologist working on this. It's true. We can do this, but should we do this? And, and if I'm pursuing an advance on this front, am I pursuing a kind of regression on another front? And how do I, how do I, how do I square that circle? So there's something like, I love that you're using the story to lean into the moral ambiguity of, of scientific research. Well, this is something that's exciting and scary at the same time. And uh, there are countless examples of research that uh, can be uh, applied to, to the wrong things. But yeah, AI is basically on top of that right now. Yeah. And it's amazing to see the progress that has been done. And sometimes it's uh, kind of funny to see how science fiction has portrayed or is still portraying the dangers of AI because there are still stories uh, with Skynet-like suddenly conscious AI decides to murder all of humanity like immediately first thing to do wipe out those humans (laughs) this is a kind of improbable scenario put mildly but there are so many actual dangers that uh, are real in our world right now and deep fakes are one such example Uh, other examples are biases and prejudices carried from flawed data sets into decisions made by uh, AIs for actual people. And uh, we can also... uh, Which then just to like underline that danger, uh, we might not even know how the AI got to the decision it's making on behalf of actual people because there's a the certain way in which yeah. the algorithms are like a black box to us. So it's exactly. kind of kind of a scary thought that we can make a thing that can do a thing and we don't know how it does that thing. <laughs> we, that's like, yeah. whoa, okay, now we're really playing with fire. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we know the architecture, but 
we don't uh, usually know what it latches onto. There are famous examples of early image processing AIs that, for instance, identified bedrooms by uh, the presence of uh, drapes on windows. Uh, and when it was shown an, an example of a bedroom without them, it didn't identify it correctly and so on and so on. There are so many examples like that. And that's also why adversarial testing is so important, you know, presenting the AI with uh, images that uh, are somewhat different than those from the learning data set and trying to see uh, you know, what happens or just changing a few pixels and seeing whether the decision holds or whether uh, it's eventually interpreted uh, incorrectly, incorrectly. And uh, this is something that's hugely important, for instance, for medical AIs. And we are already seeing the advent of uh, AI usage uh, in interpreting uh, medical images. Uh, and uh, they are immensely helping doctors, uh, but uh, at the same time, because they tend to be black boxes, uh, it's still useful to have the human oversight and mm. some experienced mm. doctor who can mm. look uh, at the X-ray image and see for herself whether uh, the diagnosis is correct or not. So mm. just mm. one of so many examples. And actually, uh, in one of my uh, recent stories, second generation that was published in Future Science Fiction magazine, uh, I probed the idea of uh, assistance, AI assistance available right in our heads to help us with the decisions, to help us with immediately doing statistics that uh, would take a huge amount of time if we were just uh, to sit to computer and uh, open R or some other program we tend to use for statistical analysis and, you know, work with the huge data sets. So, uh, it's helpful to have the assistant, but at the same time, it might make uh, the doctors, because in this case, uh, there are medical doctors, uncomfortable with the idea of someone advising them right in their head uh, and interacting with them uh, seemingly as a person. But, you know, it's not really a conscious person. It's just... Uh, uses uh, its mm -hmm. speech processing to mm. seem like one right and uh, which also can which also can put a fine point on our own uh, uh the black box that is our own consciousness that there is like we can go down a whole rabbit hole around well this assistant in my embedded in my physiology which is showing up as a phenomenon in my consciousness sure seems to be conscious I sure seem to be conscious. <laughs> Julie sure seems to be conscious, but dang, how do we know, right? So that's one sort of uh, high school philosophy question we could spend a lot of time on. But, but what I... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Tons of really exciting uh, 
neurophysiology experiments trying to unravel what parts of the brain are most important for consciousness, what kinds of cells. And there are so many different hypotheses, some seeming more likely, some less likely. It's, uh, you know, uh, there's not a close to definite answer to it yet. Uh, but to science fiction readers, I would really recommend reading uh, Peter Watts' novel Blind Side that tackles this phenomenon really brilliantly. And uh, it's also incidentally used in many courses on neurophysiology and on philosophy and psychology. So that's mm. one so way. Say the author's name one more time. Sorry? Say the author's name one more time. No, Peter Watts. Peter Watts, Blindside. Yeah, Canadian marine biologist turned science fiction writer. And so. You biologists turned science fiction writers. You're up to something. That's great. <laughs> we're, we're, well, um, basically, we are because uh, what I was uh, just going to say is that this is one example where science fiction blends into science and into science education. Mm. And as someone who is mm. active as a scientist and educator and writer, uh, for me, it was just natural to combine these avenues. And uh, for some years, I've had the uh, idea to edit an anthology of uh, science fiction stories uh, that wouldn't necessarily be hard SF uh, but would tackle science from one point of view or another, and they would be accompanied by uh, short, uh, accessibly written essays by scientists uh, saying, what's the state of knowledge right now? What are the open questions that we need to answer? Mm. So uh, basically, this is how, uh, at first, the ebook anthology Strangest of All was born uh, two years ago during the first COVID lockdowns. Uh, and we published it uh, as a freely accessible uh, ebook of eight astrobiology themed reprint science fiction stories. Uh, and each one was followed up. Uh, by a science essay, in this case, uh, written by me in every case. And since it was quite widely downloaded and uh, used in astrobiology courses, uh, we decided uh, at the European Astrobiology Institute, where I'm somewhat active, uh, to uh, pursue a more ambitious project. And... Uh, with my two co-editors from the publishing house Laxa Media, uh, Lucas Law and Susan Forrest, we started editing uh, Life Beyond Us, mm -hmm. uh, an anthology of science fiction originals written directly for the anthology, where each story is accompanied by an essay uh, written by a scientist working in some way or another by a topic uh, relevant for the story. So we have uh, stories about life on Venus uh, accompanied by articles uh, on what uh, is possible, you know, uh, what the past of Venus might have looked like, whether it could have had liquid water oceans long ago in the past, and whether it's possible that it might still harbor 
uh, life in its cloud layer, which has conditions vaguely similar to the surface of our Earth in terms mm. of temperature and pressure. Mm. Mm. So uh, oh, that's just one that of seven examples. Still, yeah. Are you still editing that or is that out? Is that out uh, it's nearly finished because we are in the phase of PDF proofs. Mm. And uh, hopefully it's going to be published later this year. Uh, actually, the Kickstarter edition, because we funded the project via Kickstarter, will be definitely published this autumn. But uh, the general release will likely uh, happen in early December. Uh, but we don't have uh, an official launch date yet. So mm. that's oh. going to happen soon. Once we get all the PDFs uh, checked by the authors of the stories and essays. Mm. Well, I can't wait to read it. One thing that's coming through to me in this conversation and and what I have had the chance to read is that um, you are both clear-eyed and optimistic. And I just really appreciate, or maybe hopeful is is a, a more accurate word. There's something about your... For instance, we were talking just a few minutes ago about AI and and your point that so many of the stories about AI reflect some pretty latent fears we have, I would say not only about the technology, but also about ourselves and 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 kind of the dominant story we have about how life works and how violent it is. And and, um, I just really appreciate that. Like you, when you work with this stuff, like in The Ship Whisperer, the ultimate hero of the story, again, (laughs) you know, Whatever, spoiler alert, like the ultimate hero of the story is, is, none, of, is none of the human protagonists, but actually Giordano Bruno, the, the ship. And, uh, and yeah, just like, that's exciting. My novel Gradient plays a bit with that. The villain in the story in, in Gradient is, is, is an AI, but like a deeply traumatized AI. And so this sort of like sense that we could, yeah, we are building some scary things and we need to be really wise in our capacity to to understand the constraints of those things like you mentioned adversarial testing is one method of that but also like thank you julie for also showing us paths where we could build incredible futures with this technology and with the, if we were willing to shift our relationship to it so it's just really exciting that you're doing this as a writer as a as a researcher as an educator on all of these fronts it's really cool. I try to be hopeful. I must admit that some days it's hard because uh, we're witnessing so much disinformation oh, and pushbacks yeah. against human rights, even in parts of the world where we wouldn't have expected them years ago. Uh, um, and- yep, I'm sitting here in America. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I feel like I have a front row seat to some of that stuff. Yeah. 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 But you, I just really want to celebrate you. Uh, and on a note of celebration, I think you, you know, are embodying, and I've, and I've mentioned this quote, it's not quite a quote, but I'll paraphrase Ursula K. Le Guin, who said, like, people couldn't imagine the end of Kings until they did. Yeah. And, you know, like, people can't imagine the end of an extractive capitalist society until we do. And so I just like, yeah, I appreciate even if you as a human are holding all of the feelings related to being alive in this moment, your stories really, at least the ones I've read, engage with them in a deeply nuanced and generous way that 
allows us to imagine some other possibilities. So I, I just want to say thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Mm, mm. So, okay, if anyone wants to go find your work, where what's the best place for them to check it out? Well, uh, they can go to my website, julienovakova.com, where I have a list of my works. Uh, many of my short stories are freely available in online magazines such as Clark's World or Future SF. There's also the anthology Strangest of All, and they uh, can head online uh, to order uh, my books, such as the story collection, The Ship Whisperer, both as an ebook or paperback. And of course, if there are Czech-speaking readers listening to the conversation right now, I have nearly 10 books in Czech. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, it's my native language, and I started publishing books when I was 17. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is so cool. And do you translate some or all of your work into English? Some of it, like Ship Whisper, was written in English, yes? Yes. Uh, lately, well, basically for uh, almost uh, 10 years, I have been writing mostly in English uh, because the market is so much bigger. We have yeah. two science fiction slash fantasy magazines in the Czech Republic. And it's not really possible to fill them both just with my stories. <laughs> <laughs> and I Fair. also must Fair. admit that the English-speaking market pays somewhat better. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. Well, but I, bet, I bet there's a bit of a two-way street, though. I imagine that as you, as you grow your fan base in English, you might also uh, be able to turn to more, to more Czech readers and sort of bring them along and, and vice versa. So I hope... Just keep planting the seeds. Yeah, I'm really, I can't wait to read more. I have, I, I still need to finish all the stories in Ship Whisperer, and now I've got to get Strangest of All, and then you've got Life Beyond Us coming soon, so lots to yeah, read. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to when the anthology is published, uh, because uh, it's a project I've been looking forward to making uh, for so long, and uh I still cherish the hope that it might not just be fun, entertaining reading, which I hope it will definitely be for most readers, but also that it's going to help science understanding and perhaps inspire people to take more interest in science, not just astrobiology, but other science as well, and perhaps even to pursue careers in STEM. Mm. Who knows? Mm. Because, mm. I mean, we definitely need more uh, talented scientists and uh, perhaps even more, we need people to take an interest in science and to understand it more deeply than on the level of American scientists found out that. Um, <laughs> <the> <laughs> As a magazine article title. What do you mean? Come on, American science. That's the best. That's great. That's all we need to know. Yeah. No, that's really awesome. I, I can't wait to yeah. read it. And I'll be sure I mean, to share it widely we, once it's live. We've seen during the COVID pandemic, which is still ongoing, that yes. uh, science understanding is vital for how we handle such crises. Uh, if more people were able to... Uh, really understands that uh, 
why masks are important and helpful or uh, how uh, vaccines were developed and how they work. We uh, might not have so many problems uh, with the pandemic still as we mm. do now at this moment. Mm. <sighs> mm. Yeah, my goodness. Well, Julie, this has been such a treat and uh, I, I'm really eager to read more and I hope that folks who are listening in take some time to, to slow down and be with some of your work, whether it's your essays or your stories. I know you're working on a novel. Take your time, fingers crossed that you finish it. Hard to do while also pursuing a PhD and being a mom, but uh, I trust it will come when the time is right. And, and uh, until the next time our paths cross, I'm just wishing you all the best and grateful for all you're bringing to the world. Thank you, and thank you so much for your great questions and for inviting me here. I really mm. appreciate it. Mm, such a treat. And thanks everyone for listening in. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.